Greetings, scholars, and welcome to Following the Gong, a podcast of the Shire Honors College at Penn State. Following the Gong takes you inside conversations with our scholar alumni to hear their story so you can gain career and life advice and expand your professional network. You can hear the true breadth of how scholar alumni have gone on to shape the world after they ran the gong and graduated with honors and learn from their experiences so you can use their insights in your own journey. This show is proudly sponsored by the Scholar Alumni Society, a constituent group of the Penn State Alumni Association. I'm your host, Sean Goheen, class of 2011 and college staff member. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Katie Luginski, class of 2016, welcomed following the gong to Anti-Fragile Brewing in downtown State College, where she serves as the head kombucha brewer for Moody Culture. Katie shares her experiences at Penn State Berks and in the College of Engineering, where she earned her Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering with honors after study abroad opportunities and a major setback on her thesis. Katie also shares her experiences deciding to pursue work in the pharmaceutical industry rather than a PhD, and her decision to uproot everything and hike the Appalachian Trail. She then explains all things kombucha, fermentation, and brewing, providing insights on this career path and the value of understanding various components of engineering and science in a field that marries her work experience and passion. Finally, Katie shares opportunities for community and state college as an alumna and powerful perspectives on finding the joy in your self-defined success. This episode is great for any scholar, and especially those in STEM majors, those interested in brewing beverages like kombucha, those staying in state college after graduation, and any scholar interested in hiking, rock climbing, or dancing. Katie's full bio and a detailed breakdown of topics can be found in the show notes on your podcast app. With that, let's spill the tea on life as a brewer with Katie Legensky, following the gong. Joining me here today on Following the Gone is head kombucha brewer for Moody Culture at Anti-Fragile Brewing, Katie Legensti. And we're actually recording here live at Anti-Fragile Brewing. If you were to stand on the front patio of Atherton Hall and you threw a rock over the student bookstore, it would land at the front door right where we're sitting. Katie, looking forward to chatting here today on our first Roadshow episode. Cool. Yeah. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for the hospitality here. Uh, we're recording on a cool fall day, and I'm enjoying some nice mulled cider, so thank you for that. Yeah. I will say, if you're as you're listening, there's probably going to be some background noises because we are recording live on site, so my apologies in advance. Now, Katie, I usually start by asking, like, how did you first come to Penn State? But I think an important contextual question to set up our whole conversation today around brewing is, uh, what exactly is kombucha? Oh, great question. Uh, Kombucha is a fermented tea beverage. Uh, It's fermented with a symbiotic consortium of bacteria and yeast and usually comes out pretty heavy in lactic and acetic acid. So it's a tart beverage, nice tea flavor. Here we add fruit and herbs to the final product and it's lightly fizzy. Tasty, got probiotics. If you like sour drinks, it's probably for you. Awesome. Well, now that that's going to help set up some of our framework for the day, or if you were tuning in and just were curious on what that is, I uh, wanted to get that up front. So now, Katie, how did you end up at Penn State back in the day? Yeah, um, so I actually started at Penn State Berks in 2012, and I started there because it was about 10 minutes from my house. I knew I wanted to study engineering, and you could do your first couple semesters at Berks uh, for engineering, and um, my sister went here too, so... 
Absolutely. And obviously, I think there's a strong Penn State Burks flavor that is a little bit of my bias coming through in this podcast over the over past episodes. So but it's a great campus to start at. So I will I will uh, definitely echo that. I actually had classes with with your sister. So <laughs> and I'm guessing that maybe her involvement might have had something to do with your pursuing being a Shrier Scholar as well? Yeah, pro- absolutely. Yeah, so my, my older sister was active in the Shrier Honors College as well, and she studied abroad through um, the Honors College, and that was definitely something that drew me to joining, was having that opportunity to study abroad, and I loved it, so it was a great, great choice. Absolutely. So you start at Berks, you know, but then you come to University Park, and it's a whole different experience. So how did you adjust and kind of get plugged in and situated up here? Yeah, it was it was honestly pretty tricky. The culture is super different on the Commonwealth campuses. Uh, having bigger class sizes was pretty daunting. Not having personal relationships with all of my teachers as a matter of course was pretty scary. Making friends here was also pretty hard, uh, especially for the students that were starting here. Like they already had their friends. They didn't need new ones. Um, so I actually found myself being friends with a lot of other students from Commonwealth campuses. So some the the better friends that I ended up having were from Penn State Hazleton. Still talk to them. We meet up once a year. Uh, but yeah, I had to be intentional about finding community once I came up here. Definitely getting used to the bigger class sizes. Yeah, I think I took Calc 3 in a class of maybe seven or eight students. And then coming here, even in chemical engineering classes, were like the smallest ones, maybe 50 people. So it was... It was different and adjusting definitely uh, reflected in my grades bit. But once I adjusted, I think that I did end up liking being here because there are a lot of resources and clubs, et cetera. Awesome. So, you know, you talked about, you know, there's that bit of a dip when you come up here. How did you handle that? You know, a lot of Shire scholars aim for perfectionism, but we have the three, four (laughs) GPA requirement for reasons so that, you know, when things happen or you experiment, you can rebound if you have an off semester. So how did you handle that? Definitely starting to do homework with other students was a big motivator for me just to, first of all, get the homework done, but also uh, being able to discuss answers. A lot of engineering problems aren't like simple to solve. So having someone just to discuss what formulas to use or how to go about problem solving was really helpful for me. Um, So I ended up living in the student lounge in Fenske, may it rest in peace. The old chemical engineering building. <laughs> the basement of Fenske was a fallout shelter because they did bomb testing back in, in the Cold War era. And that's where they put the student lounge after we didn't really need that that capacity anymore. Uh, yeah, so lived in that student lounge to, to get my homework done with some other students who were also struggling, I guess. Definitely smarter than me. They helped me a lot. <laughs> Well, and that's what's great. You know, you can find the community in the Honors College and your major and clubs. And, you know, you, you've talked about engineering. What exactly drew you to not just engineering, but specifically chemical engineering? Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And chemical engineering has been uh, dubbed the liberal arts of engineering. There's a lot of different things you can do with it. You can go the petrochemical route if you want to do petroleum engineering. Uh, You can also do the straight chemical synthesis route. I chose the more biology, uh, biological engineering route and focused on biomolecular engineering uh, because I thought that was really interesting. But I didn't know that when I first started, but chemical engineering had all of these options available. So I wanted to explore them. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably helpful for any student maybe early in their career trying to figure out like which engineering is for you. But I also noticed you use the word explore. And another thing you got to explore quite a bit was other countries through studying abroad. You mentioned your sister. We went on a trip at Burt's together. 
trying to be your inspiration for joining the college. So tell us about your study abroad experiences. What were those like, especially as an engineering student where there is a perception that you can't mix those things, but you absolutely can. Yeah, for sure. So another great thing about Penn State Berks is there is the one credit course every spring where a teacher will focus on literature for the most part, depends on the class. But my my two trips that I took, one to South Africa and then one to Turkey, both of those were focused on literature of those areas. And, and obviously South Africa has a rich history from a political standpoint as well. I mean, so does Turkey, that's both of them. But so taking those classes and having access to that through the Honors College and studying literature as an engineering student was cool diversity to have. And then studying abroad in Singapore, I studied at the National University of Singapore, which at the time was one of the best chemical engineering schools in the world. Speaking of <laughs> grades suffering, there were some really hard classes there. And I unfortunately didn't save up my electives. So I was there taking mass transfer, pharmacokinetics classes that uh, were hard to begin with. And then at a very difficult school was probably not my, my best choice, uh, but uh, that was something that I had access to through the Honors College and also had some financial support for him. Uh, so that was pretty cool. And then when I was in Singapore, I was gone almost every weekend exploring other countries for hiking, uh, looking at temples, Sometimes I would take a bus to Malaysia just to uh, get food for dinner. That was fun. Yeah, so as, as an engineer, you can choose schools that have, you know, language of instruction as your uh, English was my preferred language of instruction, which Singapore fit that bill. Great engineering school. I was there for a semester, so it wasn't a huge commitment, but still took some rigorous classes. That's awesome. So you meant like you were in a place that was kind of centrally located to be able to easily jet off to so many other locations. Was that a factor in your consideration or was it the academics and then that was a bonus? It was a bonus. Yeah. So Singapore, also the financials worked out for that. So some of the study abroads don't have a strict, this has probably changed since I've been in school, but other universities that had language of instruction of English were charging additional fees on top of Penn State tuition. So that also factored into my choice of Singapore. But yeah, it was a great school. The fact that you could get $20 flights to a couple other countries in Southeast Asia was just, yeah, it was a perk. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, if you're considering studying abroad, you know, something to think about is where else can you go? Because your home base is wherever you're studying abroad for that semester. So, you, mm -hmm. know, you know, if you're in France or Italy or Germany, somewhere where you can easily head across Europe or perhaps somewhere in South America, Brazil in general, off across the continent so something to consider yeah now you got back to the states and time to do your thesis just right? barely <laughs> <laughs> well tell us about that what was your thesis experience like my thesis was uh multifaceted because my experiments didn't necessarily work out i was uh, working in a chemical engineering lab with wayne curtis and my first project was doing a de novo assembly of a bacteria novel bacterium that we had isolated from an algal culture. So the algae we were interested in because it naturally produced hydrocarbons that could be used as biofuels without any hydrothermal liquefaction, which is the traditional route. Grow algae, get gas, essentially. But this algae, because it had this uh, hydrocarbon like biofilm, essentially, a lot of things would get trapped in it. So getting an exenic, a clean culture of that algae was really difficult. And one of the contaminants that we kept having to try to remove was this bacteria. And so we got it sequenced, found out it was a novel bacteria, assembled the genome, uh, found out that it had a lot of virulent genes in it, <laughs> which we probably shouldn't have been working with in the, in the lab that we had, but it was isolated from literally outside. So there was no real way for us to know that. But so I couldn't really continue work on that, knowing that it was 
a, a dangerous bacteria to work with and we just didn't have the, the lab cabinets to work with it. Um, so I started uh, working on a protein expression experiment of, of embryogenesis inducing protein in rice. So for plant cloning plants, getting a transgenic plant line, you most of the time for rice anyway, want callus. It's a tissue that expresses, um, that makes the DNA more open to um, editing. So less tightly wrapped around histones so that we can edit it more easily. But getting callus in that, that type of tissue is a not very well-defined uh, route for rice specifically. There's a lot of hormones that you can use, or we had an idea that this specific protein, which was a PLA protein, um, if we isolated that and treated the tissue with just this protein, we can induce callus. So we were trying to get to the end of that experiment. I didn't have time. Plants grow super slow. I only had about a year to do it. So didn't get as far on that as I wanted to, but had a lot of other material from the de novo gen genome assembly from the bacteria. So my, my thesis kind of focused on those two things. Interesting. And I'm going to pretend I understood half of that, but okay. if you were in STEM and understood all of what Katie was just saying, kudos to you. Uh, but it sounds like it was really interesting and kind of you had to backtrack and start over and assuming you had to work with your thesis advisor in the college to kind of figure out like how, okay, you're doing the work, you're making stuff happen, but by the nature of what you're studying, it you don't have the full length of time that the study like this could require is that yeah. essentially happened i wanted to graduate so we had a partial thesis yeah well you know i'm glad that we were able to work with you to recognize the work and effort that you did put in so uh any thought to ever like finishing that off i definitely have better tools now after working in the biotech industry for five years i have better tools now to answer that question than i did as <laughs> as a, a mere babe in in college i don't know I don't know if I would go back and work on the same project again. Something that uh, when I started working in an in industry, I found out what I was struggling with for close to a year trying to clone something. I could have just ordered it online for $300. I just didn't even know that that resource existed. And just talking to people who are experts in the field, sometimes like you get these epiphanies being like, oh, I could have just done this. So in the end, maybe it would be an easy experiment to do. But do I want to go back to school? No. No, I think I'm good. <laughs> so, you know, working, you're here at Antifragile, right? Is there anything from your thesis experience that you, jumping ahead a little bit, use in the brewing process or any of those skills that you developed in the lab sure. that you use here? Absolutely. So brewing is microbiology. So yeah, having a strong background or, or a good idea of microbes and their different requirements, absolutely. It's super applicable here, um, especially with kombucha as a mixed fermentation. So beer is an exanic culture. Most of the time depends on the beer, but you want your beer to pretty much be fermented by a single yeast strain. And kombucha has, a, oh, it's a wild fermentation. It's environmental microbes that like to grow a certain pH with tea as its nutritional requirements and, and white sugar, but they all have different temperatures that they prefer, different oxygen requirements, different CO2 evolution, and having an idea of at least the breadth of different microbes. Like I often think about my micro 201 class that I took. That's like the only textbook I kept from school was this Brock microbiology. It's like a, it's a Bible of all these beautiful pictures of different microbes and like the phylogenetics and how they're all related. So yeah, for sure. Brewing is microbiology. Well, we're going to dive a little bit more into the brewing in a couple minutes, but you did mention that you worked 
in industry first and biotech and, and kind of some pharma space. So how did you approach those internships and finding those opportunities to get your foot in the door in undergrad and then ultimately, you know, finding that first full-time role outside of college once you graduated? Yeah, it wasn't straightforward. That is that is for sure. So I thought that I wanted to get a PhD until about second semester senior year when I sat down writing um, purpose statements for applications. You know, I had already taken the GRE. I got all my transcripts ready, was looking at applying to a couple labs, was already talking to some PIs. And I was writing my, my statements about like why I wanted a PhD. And I was like, oh, I don't think I actually want this, which if you... <laughs> <laughs> spend your four years preparing for academia and then at the end you end up wanting to go to industry like yeah it's it's not it's not easy because every summer I was doing REUs or working for the university not getting any industry experience and then uh, when I was done with school saying like hey industry give me a job and they're like no we're gonna just hire our interns that had worked for the summer um, so I actually started at GlaxoSmithKline which in their Collegeville Pennsylvania location in their drug discovery space they have a co-op program that you can co-op which is a six-month stint essentially after you graduate so I had applied to one of those and <laughs> there was a specific one of the specific proteins in my thesis was actually one that someone there was studying and she's like, oh, you're perfect for this job. So that was like very, uh, very lucky for me to get that job, but worked there for six months, basically as a, as a bench scientist in R&D. And then I was like, hey, wait a second, I'm a chemical engineer. I should do process engineering, right? Because that's what my degree is in. So then um, I worked on the manufacturing floor also for GSK um, in Conshohocken uh, Manufacturing Methylizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody uh, used for the treatment of different various lung lung disorders, COPD. Decided I did not like that. <laughs> what was it about that that you didn't like? Uh, it wasn't as technical as I was expecting it to be. It was a lot of paperwork. So when a drug has already made it to market, there's nothing you can change about the process without redoing clinical trials. So even if there were places we could optimize to easily increase imp output of, of drug production, we physically could not because the FDA says, no, you're changing the product. You need to start from scratch. You, you have to start from scratch. And the, the term that people use is the process makes the product. So if you change your process, the product is different, even if you can prove by mass spec that it's exactly identical. Um, so that was extremely frustrating. And a lot of the job ended up being paperwork and you know, following regulations, and it just wasn't what I was expecting. I thought there was gonna be more problem solving. Very different from working in R&D. Uh, so I ended up going back to my old department that I did my first co-op in, and they were hiring full-time people. And I was like, cool. I would like to apply for one of those. And they're like, cool, you can work here. So I worked. Always nice when people say that, right? It is fantastic. <laughs> they're like, can I have a job? One job, please. So I worked there for about a year and uh, was not happy with development. And as some of you who are in the pharmaceutical industry may know, people get traded like trading cards between different companies. If you're not promoted, if you, if you don't like your current job, just go work at one of the other five within 15 miles of your house kind of thing. So um, I quit at GSK to work a different type of job in R&D at J&J &J in Springhouse, Johnson & Johnson. And I was there for three years until the pandemic, essentially. And then in 2021, I decided to quit and through hike the Appalachian Trail. So I was I was really like, whoa, when I was reading your questionnaire ahead of time, because that hadn't come up in any of our pre-chat. And walk us through like, so you have a steady job, good income, working in pharma. Yeah. 
And obviously, I'm sure the pandemic caused most everybody to reevaluate something in their Absolutely. life, right? But like, walk us through your mindset, like your process of like, hey, I'm going to give all this up to go do this thing that maybe a lot of people say they want to do, but you're actually going to do it. Yeah, it was super scary. And I don't think that I would have actually done it had my partner not also decided to do it with me. Both of us ended up at similar emotional places about our careers. You know, we had fit that, hit that five-year mark of experience and like, well, the things that are expected of us now are different. Are the expectations meeting our goals? And the answer for both of us was no. We had both, you know, been in financial good standing. I, this is not something I recommend for folks with student debt. Like, you got to pay your bills first. <laughs> uh, but financially, we were in a good place. Physically, we were both young and healthy. Like a lot of people wait until they retire to do something like the Appalachian Trail. And it's like, well, if your body's already kind of falling apart, it's just going to be harder and not as enjoyable. So we decided to carpe the diem and just do it. But yeah, it was super scary. And it felt it felt good to quit. But it was also like, I can't believe I just did that. Like having a good career, especially in the space that I was in, most of my peers had PhDs and I only had a bachelor. So I was like already in a place of privilege in that in that space. And it did feel even more privileged leaving, but it was, it was the right choice. I'm glad that I did it. So once you made the decision, how did you two actually like the logistics of preparing? Oh. How did you... Getting on trail was the hardest part. Yeah. So we packed up our apartment in five years. We were we were renting. So we just broke our lease and put all of our belongings, what we didn't sell. So basically we made the decision about January of 2021 that we were going to do this. And I had an investment maturing at J&J in June. So I'm like, okay, that's going to be my, sorry, J&J, that's going to be my last day. Um, we're going to work through then. And so basically we had those six months to start like selling things and organizing and um, figuring out where we were going to put the belongings that we did want to keep and like making gear. And we ended up dehydrating all of our food for the trail as well. So our nine trag scalper was running all the time, dehydrating different vegetables and proteins uh, for the dinners that we were going to be eating on trail for six months. Yeah, it was that was also really difficult. Moving is really hard. Uh, so we ended up putting all of our belongings in various basements and attics across the state uh, between friends and family. And we basically just didn't have any place to live for about a year. And while we were hiking, we lived out of our backpacks. We had everything we needed in there. So like it wasn't it was very different from what we were used to. But yeah, moving was always difficult. Yeah, I think there's it's funny there there's this expression of like kind of go where the job is, but sometimes it's not that not that simple, right? And especially if you're, you know, not even following a job, you're following a trail down the East Coast, right? Maybe a silly question, and I'm sure if you're listening you can pause and look at the Wikipedia article for this, but like where do you actually start? Like how do you decide which even direction you're going to go north or south? Yeah. Um so for through hiking, hike your own hike. Everyone has a different uh idea of what a through hike means, but I think I believe according to the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, which is one of the main trail maintainers uh, for the AT, through hike is uh, at least 2,000 miles. So the trail, the year that I hiked it was about 2,200. So at least 2,000 miles covered in a calendar year. So if you start on June 1st, 2022, by June 1st, 2023, you need to have hiked 2,000 miles of, of the trail. 
for me, I started in Maine at the Northern Terminus and hiked south to Georgia. A lot of folks, about 90% of the people who finish start in Georgia and hike north to Maine, just because the seasons are a little bit kinder. The, the window to hike the trails a little bit longer if you go that direction, but we were constrained by time, so we started um, southbound. A lot of folks start in Virginia at the uh, emotional midpoint of the trail, Harper's Ferry, and hike either north or south, and then flip back to hike to Harper's Ferry and then hike the other half of the trail from there. That still counts as a through hike according to the ATC, but some people feel that it needs to be a continuous footpath. So depends on the person that you ask. <laughs> so how long did it actually take you to get from the northernmost point to, did you get to the southern terminus? Yeah, yeah, it took us five and a half months. And because we started so late in the, so late in the season, um, my partner ended up <laughs> hurting his foot. He had not broken it, but there was uh, a some sort of tendonitis issue that we ended up starting a month late, later than we anticipated. So we ended up finishing December 18th in Georgia. We were like, let's let's try not to miss Christmas if we can help it. So the last couple of weeks we were averaging like 25 mile days to just push to get through. But yeah, five and a half months I believe is close to average. I think 150 days is the average for people who finish. But of people who th start through hikes, I think it's only 20, 25% actually finish. So Katie, I bet we could probably have done an entire podcast episode about your tr <laughs> your trip, five and a half months on the trail and all the interesting characters and cool places and weird things that you probably saw or experienced. But is there just one cool, interesting, weird anecdote that you want to share to give a flavor of what it might be if somebody, you know, somebody, if students, a hiker, a mountain climber, that sort of thing, they're outdoorsy and they want to look at doing this in the future what's just to give a flavor of what they could expect i guess i'll just point out my favorite part but the the best part about through hiking is definitely the intensity of community that you end up finding anyone else who is as crazy as you to be doing the same thing as soon as you meet them and you realize that they are as crazy as you you're like instantly friends for life like your family and because we were hiking in an off season in the less common direction, we only ran into maybe 15 people doing the same same thing as us. And do I still talk to them like regularly? Yes, even though I finished the trail like two years ago. Um, I'm actually visiting one for his birthday in November. In a couple of weeks, I'm gonna go see him for his birthday. Yeah, it's like, I've not experienced that type of intense community in any other context. And that's like what I miss most about trail and. Am I going to through hike another trail at some point? Absolutely, because I want that pack. Like, it's fantastic. Not the answer I would have expected, but that is a really cool answer nonetheless. So, you know, you you meet all these cool people, you build this community along the way, but you, hey, we want to get home by Christmas, and you achieve that. So you get through Christmas. How did you two start figuring out, like, what's next? Oh. You know, you had sold off a lot of stuff. You've got things yeah. in storage units and basements and attics, like you said. How did you start getting back to some semblance of what most of us would call a normal life? Yeah, first of all, the post-trail depression is real. It was rough. Okay, talk about that. What yeah. does that mean? I mean, like, you, you lose your community, essentially, when you finish, and... One of the simple things about hiking the trail that I didn't realize was like amazing until I got off was, you know what you're doing every day. You don't have to decide. And that was something that I suffered from the most was decision fatigue. Like, what am I going to do every day? Because like you hike 25 miles, that's your entire day. Like you wake up, you eat. First, you have to eat thousands of calories every day if you're just going to continue surviving. And you, you hike and then you eat and you go to sleep. And like that was really simple and coming off trail be like well what should I be doing and deciding like what do I want to do like it's tiring yeah fatiguing 
when I was on trail, I was thinking about what I wanted to do next because you have a lot of time to think. And something that I put on my bucket list was working at a brewery. It's something that I've wanted to do for a long time and was like, well, I had a job before, so I couldn't really work too. But I was like, hey, I don't have a job now. I might go back to pharma, but like I have some time to work a couple years at a brewery. That would be cool. So when we got off trail, we ended up doing a, a road trip. So we lived out of my Prius for a couple months, put 8,000 miles on her going out to California and then back up to Maine and just around the country seeing folks. And then we signed a lease here in State College last summer. And just to pay some bills, I started working on uh, on campus in a lab, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And then uh, I judged a competition in February of this year with Paolo, the head brewer here. And he was saying that he needed some help, that he's a little overworked, a little overstressed. And I was like, hey, this is perfect. So I messaged him after the competition and he's like, oh yeah, come on down. He's like, can you start Monday? I was like, perfect. Glad we can finally do this. So I left my job on campus to work here and it's fantastic. I love it. It's, it's great. So Katie, you said just a second ago that you had always wanted to work in a brewery. Why? What inspired that? Uh, give I us love your brewery. So your, give us your brewing origin story here. Back in the day, back in, what was this? 2015, I brewed my first batch of beer with a friend. And that was while you were still in college, correct? Yes. Yes. Still in college. And one of my friends was but like- But not in Atherton or Simmons, right? No, 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 no. This is <laughs> not not on campus. It's a dry campus, Sean. You, sh- you know that. <laughs> no, but there is actually a homebrew club on campus. Of course there is. <laughs> How can there not be? With the food sciences and everything like that? Of course there is. But no, I brewed my first batch of beer with a friend who was just kind of like uh, incidentally asking me like, hey, I'm doing this. Do you want to come over and, and brew some beer with me? And I was like, sure. And we did it. And I was like, this is actually kind of cool. This is pretty, pretty cool. Um, and then uh, started brewing myself a couple years later. Won homebrewer of the year at my homebrew club. Very nice. Uh, won a couple blue ribbons, sent some competitions, did a couple pro-ams branched out into other fermentations so i kept bees for four years had 100 pounds of honey harvested every summer well i guess i'll start making mead which is fermented honey i mean like sure why not honey wine sounds fantastic uh friends asked me to make wine for their wedding i was like okay i guess i make wine now and i also did the sourdough throughout the pandemic because who didn't at that point <laughs> lacto fermented hot sauces sauerkraut kimchi i just really like fermenting things And then I started making kombucha during the pandemic as well. And that kind of, I think, was the nail on the coffin here for being the kombucha brewer. They're like, oh, you already know how to make this and it tastes good. Like, cool. You got the job. (laughs) So were you much like a beer, mead, wine drinker, like before discovering the homebrew or how did that happen? I did always have a soft spot for beer as like. Many a Penn Stater. I mean, how could you not? (laughs) No, I remember the first beer that I drank where I was like, this is fantastic. People are going to judge me for this. But I was at, um, at a party in undergrad and someone gave me a Jenny Cream Ale, Genesee Cream Ale. And I was like, this is so good. And it's it's a light cream ale. It's, it's not a heavy beer. It's one of these 50 cents a can situations. But to this day, it is still one of my favorite beers. And I just like remember that and being like, I want to I want to make this like it's like cooking, right? Cook up some beer. It'd be delicious. Yeah. That's awesome. So you said that how you kind of got your role, not kind of, how you got your role here 
was that you connected at a competition that you were judging. So how did you go from presumably, you know, you said you won these blue ribbons to being on the other side. Like walk us through the amateur brewing scene. (laughs) It's pretty crazy. Like folks spend like a lot of time brewing. So I'm BJCP certified. So brewing... A beer judging certification program certified. So this is an international program where there are different tiers of basically judges. Um, So between the entry tier and like the top tier, I'm like somewhere in the middle as a certified judge. And to do that, I had to take a qualifying exam. And then once I qualified, took a tasting exam where I judged six beers next to two judges who were very well-renowned, highly ranked, and based on how I, like, how my critiques matched theirs, then I got my ranking. And so I've been judging, like, that since 2019, and a couple competitions every year. I might be judging the farm show this year, which would be kind of cool. That would Never be. done it's that before. Pretty big deal here in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, have been judging for the breweries in Pennsylvania um, competitions this past, this past year. Yeah, so people care what I think think about their beer I guess (laughs) so when you're judging you know there's that I think there's a moment in the office where Michael Scott says something has like that oaky is that (laughs) is that sort of is that those flavor profiles that you're you're judging and that you're looking for yes as part of it so there there's five pieces that we look for appearance aroma flavor overall impression and mouthfeel so overall impression would just be like do I like this personally and then the other four have very distinct would I buy this or do I want to puke yeah uh, <laughs> that's maybe on the extremes. A, a little less diplomatic than I would put on a score sheet but there I mean that's not far from some of the reactions that I've had but for the other four categories there are like very specific vocabulary that you use that matches different sensory outputs for the mouthfeel, aroma, and flavor. So getting certified through this judging program is being able to identify specific characteristics and then also use the correct vocabulary for them so that everyone, there's the consistency across the board. And then stylistically, beer style is important. <laughs> the, is it an IPA or is it a New England IPA situation? Um, so there's a 150 page style guideline that we also have to align to for that. That's intense. So how do you as a judge, you know, everybody has their favorites and the, maybe the kinds that they don't like. You know, some people love their IPAs. Some people say they taste like soap. Yeah. Right. How do you handle the flavors that you really like versus the ones you don't? So being a judge, part of being a judge is remaining objective. So even if you don't like something, you still have to judge it objectively. When you sign up for a competition, most competition organizers will ask you, is there anything you don't want to judge? And then you can tick those boxes. So like my partner really despises Belgian beers. <laughs> he, he judged a, a Belgian table one year. Most of the time, the styles are grouped together. So if there's 10 Belgian entries into a competition, they'll all be judged against each other. And he just didn't have a great time judging that. And now there's, there's a bit of a scarring experience. So he ticks that box. Please don't give me Belgians in, in the competitions that he judges. Uh, so that's a possibility. But like for your tasting exam, if you get a style that you don't like, you still have to you know rate it accurately if you're going to pass and get your certification. So back here at Anti-Fragile and Moody Culture, this is, I guess, kind of a simple question with a complex answer but what are your responsibilities here as the lead brewer for the kombucha side of the brewery yeah so that's um that's a good question i didn't know when i started actually i'm not sure that john and paolo knew either they're just like yeah go go take care of the tea so right now my um responsibilities are to brew the tea ferment it out 
flavor it, package it into cans and six stalls. Make sure that I'm trying different teas for new bases. Our base right now is currently black and green, black and green tea. Um, so just exploring new flavors, keep things fresh, get seasonal flavors together. Uh, and then also like having people try our kombucha. So going out, finding new accounts, selling at various, like I sold some at Arts Fest, a few streets shut down we're at um, once per month. But yeah, it's mostly just brewing. I don't take care of many business side things, thankfully, because it does not interest me. But yeah, if there's tea made in anti-fragile, it's because I made it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just trying to guess here, right? That you're not just using a run-of-the-mill teapot. You've got some industrial equipment to brew. Like you're not just throwing a kettle on the stove for a, uh, for a cuppa. There's a lot more production and science pieces involved in this. You know, give us an overview of brewing a batch. The brewing process. So yes, it is basically glorified cuppa. I'm not going to lie. I have a giant 45-gallon kettle that I just boil my water in, and then I transfer it into another very large large kettle with uh, tea bags big enough to probably fit uh, volumetrically probably like six-gallon milk jugs. I'll use that size tea bag. Um, way so you're out putting of- like duffel bag-sized tea bags in yeah. this kettle. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because I'm brewing... 60 gallons of tea at once. Yeah, so I'll put a couple pounds of tea leaves in there. I just got a a shipment of tea in. I had about 120 pounds of green tea come in, 140 pounds of black tea. So weighing weighing those out, throwing them in there, letting them steep for a couple minutes, you know, and then cooling it down enough to pitch the culture, our our, uh, proprietary moody culture. So I just use starter tea. If you fermented kombucha at home, many people transfer their SCOBY over as well. I don't do that here because the SCOBY actually clogs up my fermenters. So I'll just seed my, inoculate my culture with tea without the SCOBY and then set my temperature controller to cook at the right temperature and then taste it about two weeks in. If I'm happy with the acidity, then I'll take my final vital statistics for pH and and gravity um, to make sure that it's food safe and uh, throw in the flavors. I was going to ask, when does the flavoring, because I'm sitting here, if you walk into Antifragile, if you come down here from Atherton or Simmons, or if you're in town, you're a campus student like Katie and I were at various points, you walk in, there's a fridge full of different colored cans, so there's yeah, we've lots got the of rainbow. flavors. You, you do, there's like a <laughs> rainbow of flavors here. So like, how does that flavoring process work? Yeah, so it depends on the flavor. Some herbs um, will be hot steeped along with the tea, but I find that a lot of fruit the fruit flavor is more prominent and fresher if it is cold steeped and not fermented along with the tea. It's just a more recognizable fruit flavor. I'll f- ferment the kombucha dry and then b- essentially back sweeten it with the fruit of, of choice in juice format. So um, the fruit is typically not fermented. The herbs sometimes are, but I prefer them not to be. So, you know, you have this great run of flavors. And when we talked before, some of the flavors you inherited when you came in, Mm -hmm. Moody Culture's been around for a few years, but then you've introduced quite a few new flavors to the lineup. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to run this flavor today and and brew a whole batch of the raspberry lemon or the ginger, what was it, ginger? Blueberry ginger. Blueberry ginger one. And that's today's goal, right? But Mm -hmm. when you're developing a new one, how do you do that experiment process? So it definitely depends on the on the experiment, how risky it is. So if I think it's a pretty low risk, I'll just do an entire batch. If I'm not entirely sure how something's going to taste once it's fermented, because it's pretty strong, like the kombucha fermentation flavor is 
pretty strong. I'll do a small like quart size mason jar and taste that. And if I'm happy with it, then I'll scale up to my 31 gallon barrel. Uh, for flavoring with new different types of fruit, I'll weigh out a sample of tea and then weigh out a sample of the fruit or steep the herb and, and figure out like how much I want to add on a small scale. Do small scale tastings. Anyone who, who's been in the bar with me at the time that I'm doing it, I'll usually ask their opinion too. Say like, which one do you like better? Do you think it's too sweet? Do you think that it could be like a stronger flavor? And then I'll go ahead and flavor the rest of the, the barrel like that. Uh, so usually small scale, like literally on a scale so that I can calculate how much like what ratio to add to the rest of the barrel. And then like, how do you decide when you're happy with it and like you're ready to put your either literal or proverbial stamp of approval on it? (laughs) So it'll condition for about a week or two to carbonate and then I'll be tasting it the entire time it's conditioning. Also still asking other people's opinions if I'm not sure about it myself. Um, And then when it's ready, it goes into five gallon kegs or it goes into 12 ounce cans to, to get shipped off to folks. Awesome. Now, you know, you've mentioned acquiring tea. A lot of these are have herbs, spices, fruit infused flavors. So how do you actually go about like sourcing your ingredients? Because if you look yeah. inside the can, it's basically a couple of ingredients, but like they're obviously all very important and all agricultural products. So how, besides the cans and the kegs to put them in inevitably, walk us through your supply chain process, if, if you will. Yeah. So I actually inherited most of it. John had already figured out. John's the owner. John is uh, the owner, right. yes, and, and the founder of Mooney Culture. He had already done all of that work for me when I got here for the most part. For sourcing new ingredients, many times folks will give you a sample knowing that you're a commercial setup. So my tea supplier, I'll say, hey, I'd like to try these new flavors of tea. Can you send me a couple ounces? And they will. And then I'll, you know, steep a cup of tea for myself to drink and then kind of decide whether or not that's a flavor profile I want to pursue. Same with uh, fruit suppliers. We'll get samples from them and I'll decide whether or not I like the way it tastes with the kombucha. And if I like it, then I'll order a full batch. But yeah, most places are pretty, pretty chill about like sending you a sample if you say that you're a professional because then they know that you'll be buying a lot from them if you like it. Makes sense from yeah. the business side. Now, you said you don't like too much of the business side of things, but obviously you're brewing this stuff and you want to get your beverage in the hands of either state college residents, Penn State students, tourists here for Arts Fest, football games, or the trail of breweries that you're on. How do you put out to the world like, hey, we've got this new flavor, come try it? Uh, so mostly on Instagram. I'm not even in charge of that. <laughs> uh, sometimes if we, if we get a new flavor, um, I'll take a sample can to a new business and be like, hey, would you be interested in, in carrying this and leave them my card? Um, and then they like it, then they'll carry it. But uh, oh, yeah. Kind Insta- of what your suppliers do for you. Yes, yep. in a way. Yes. The, yeah, just kick down the curve a little bit. But no, pretty much Instagram is the only way we advertise. And then there are a couple diehard fans who advertise for us. Be like, Moody Culture is the great and post that on Instagram and then we'll share it on our on our story too. But yeah. For right now, it's just the gram. So one other avenue, though, I stumbled upon a press release about the hard kombucha that you developed here. Oh, yeah. So talk us through that, because kombucha, there's a little disclaimer on the can that says, like, there's trace amounts of alcohol, but it's not an alcoholic beverage, right? But you developed one in the spirit of, you know, hard seltzers and this kind of wave of other alcoholic drinks that have developed over the past couple of years. You've essentially helped pioneer hard kombucha. So tell us about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the hard kombucha is my baby for sure. It's something that John's been wanting to do for a couple of years and has made a, made a couple of attempts before I started here. Definitely 
definitely gave me a couple data points for what doesn't work, which was very helpful. And when I started here, I knew that it was going to be a difficult fermentation uh, just based on pH, the pH being very low. So it's a very acidic beverage to begin with. And uh, yeast is particularly sensitive to acetic acid, which is vinegar, which is uh, one of the main flavors in kombucha. So I had to be careful in which yeast strain I wanted to choose to do the alcoholic fermentation. So the, the way that the hard kombucha is made is the kombucha fermentation itself, rather than going to completion, I'll halt it partway through and then add additional fermentables and a single strain of yeast that I know is going to kick off alcohol because the yeast in, in, in the regular kombucha culture is not bred for that. Kombucha will have about half percent ABV alcohol, which according to the Liquor Control Board is, is a non-alcoholic beverage. And I'll QC my non-alcoholic batches to confirm that before we put it in cans. But for to, to make a hard batch, you need to use a different yeast that has been bred for making alcohol. And the pH of the fermentation has to start out high enough that the yeast is not being subjected to too much acetic acid. Um, so I'm still fine tuning the fermentation. Everyone is coming out a little bit different. I think a little bit better each time as, I, as I'm taking um, iterations and what I think is going to improve the yeast health for the alcoholic fermentation. Also flavors. Uh, the flavor of the hard kombucha is not just the kombucha flavor. It also has esters and phenols from the yeast from the alcoholic production. So the flavors and the fruits and herbs that go well with that are different than what would, I think, be harmonious with the regular kombucha. So I'm still working out those kinks as well. So is the goal to have like a whole line of flavors as you try to figure out what works? Yeah, I think that, yeah, having... You know, a rainbow of hard kombucha would also be the, the ultimate goal one day. So when folks come in here, they can have the choice. Awesome. So when you had mentioned you've done, you started with beer, you had honey, so you made mead. Maybe you took that to a Renaissance festival, perhaps. You made wine <laughs> for friends. How have you seen the brewing community and I guess kind of the environment around this space change and grow since you started as a student, you know, there's hard ciders and seltzers and, and the kombucha that you're doing. Where where has it gone and where is it going, do you think? So many homebrewers can attest to this, this uh, change in the community as well. When I first started brewing, it was because it was really hard to get craft beer. So if you wanted a craft style beer that wasn't a domestic or import can that you could find at like Wegmans or something, you had to make it yourself or you had to travel and, and really bend over backwards to get your hands on a couple cans of something truly craft. That's not true anymore <laughs> because there's so many microbreweries that like certain styles, I just won't even brew at home anymore, like an IPA, like it's just not worth it. On an industrial scale, The just like the technical production of an IPA is difficult and, and on an industrial scale, scale, it's much easier to do than on the homebrew scale. So I just like won't even touch that style at home because it's so readily available. Homebrewing for me, um, from my perspective and personally has moved to a more historic renaissance of different styles. So instead of just being like, I want to craft IPA, it is now I want to brew a style of beer that I can't find anywhere because it's it's a niche style that maybe people have forgotten about, like a Kentucky Common or a Pivogorjitskaya, traditional beers that were made regionally in the United States or in, in Europe or Brazil or Australia that are basically coming to light and they're like historical brews and you can't necessarily find them commercially because there isn't a lot of demand for them but just basically like reliving history through brewing is what it has become more for me. 
Very cool. Reminds me, there's, uh, I, I've seen YouTubers who do like historic recipes yeah. and, and things like pumpkin pie from George Washington's era, right? Yes. And stuff like that. Yes. So pretty, bringing back some of those old old style, right? Maybe obviously you don't have the same yeast necessarily. It might have be hard to track down, but something in the, in the spirit of that, right? Yeah. Very cool. So if a student or a young alum or even just a seasoned alum was listening to this and they're like, I want to try this at home because that's where all all of you start, essentially, right, is kind of this home thing. How can they act like what's the best way to like just go for it and try it? Probably starting with juice of some sort is your easiest shot, like make a, a wine, essentially, depending on when you release this. This might not be relevant anymore, but this time of year, super easy to get your hands on raw cider. Basically just let it ferment. There's natural yeasts in there and doesn't really need a whole lot of nutritional requirements. Making wine is a little bit more difficult because like wine from grapes, because uh, it's a higher alcohol fermentation. So I would probably shy away from that. Uh, your, your easiest thing would probably just be finding a juice that you enjoy, finding Brewer's yeast is pretty easy. It's like a dollar a packet at a lot of homebrew shops or even on Amazon. So your air trap could probably be a balloon or a loose a loose cap. If I were to help someone get their feet on the ground for fermentation, I would probably say get a gallon of cider, loosen the cap, leave it on your counter for a couple weeks. It might be a little vinegary, but hey, you might find out you like that. Uh, maybe a less traditional one is if you already do sourdough, like you're already fermenting, that's a fermentation. At the end of the summer, when you have too many peppers from your garden, like just throw some salt in there to a two, three, two to four percent brine by weight and let those ferment. You're a brewer. Like, there, there's so many ways to to ferment. It's it's more like a personal thing too. Like, what do you what do you want to get out of it? Well, I'm guessing there's no shortage of resources that you can check out if if any of that sounded appealing. So. Oh, for sure. Just Google it. And there will be a forum telling you exactly what to do. That is the beauty of fermentation. I had someone come in here a couple of weeks ago and ask me like, what books do you recommend? And I'm like, I don't think that I could recommend any specific books because most of my questions I type directly into Google, get a couple different answers, choose the one that I think are relevant to me and just go ahead and try it. Like a lot of my knowledge is based on just doing it and seeing how it tastes at the end. Makes sense. So you chose to come back to State College, Katie, and obviously working in a brewery, not exactly a nine to five job. You have more of a unique schedule, right? Because the breweries, yeah. currently the hours are like Wednesday, Thursday till through the weekend, right? Like the yeah, weekend they're definitely is in different. flux too. <laughs> How do you find time to get away from the brewery? What are you engaged with in State College? You know, if a student is thinking about staying here for grad school or or they have a career opportunity here in Happy Valley, what is life like beyond being a student? The community in State College, I think, is enriched by the resources that the university supplies. So the community that I'm pretty heavily involved in is the social dance community and Quite a few of the clubs that I dance with are Penn State clubs. So they receive funding and resources from the university. So it's directly pumping blood into the community because of because of Penn State. Yeah, so I social dance a lot. <laughs> what exactly does that mean? Uh, so social dancing, it, to me, means partner dancing in a way that isn't like a traditional ballroom dance where you have your same partner that you dance styles with. Uh, social dancing is you dance with your friends and you can get new partners and might be someone you've never talked to before and you might never talk to again. But if they know how to dance the style of music that's on right now, you can dance with them and have a great connection that way. So last night I was at a salsa lesson and learned how to salsa dance with uh, some other community members. Bachata is another favorite. East Coast Swing, Lindy Hop. 
fusion dancing, blues dancing. There's a lot of different clubs here that I spend probably like half of my evenings dancing some sort of style of dance. And those obviously are all open to students too if folks want to try those out. Um, Center Social Dance, the Penn State Swing Club, Penn State Social Dance are all clubs that I'm involved with. I'm also super into rock climbing as well. Shocker. Uh, I know. Outdoor activity. What? So I've been out to Donation Rocks a couple times this fall in Huntington. Um, There's a beautiful crag there that's been climbed by some of the greats. There's a route that I was climbing uh, the last time I was there that was set by Royal Robbins himself. So there's there's been some big names who have climbed there and it's perfect climbing season right now. And then obviously climbing um, at Climb Nittany or the IM building. Great way to meet folks to belay you outside. (laughs) Yeah. Um, what else do I do? Oh, I'm in the Homebrew Club here, too. Yeah. Surprise. Yeah, big surprise there. Yeah, I'm vice president. Or uh, We actually just had an Oktoberfest club competition where folks brewed with um, another person in the club, so it was a collaboration. Um, went and brewed on a new system to them, and someone wrote the recipe, and another person brewed it, and then we all tasted it together and gave tasting notes, filled out judging score sheets. Yeah, also open to students. That's cool. Yeah. Very good stuff. So... We're sitting here at Anti-Fragile. We're wrapping up our conversation. Katie, really appreciate the hospitality here. It's a really cool location. If you're, do you have to be 21 to actually come check this out? No, there are some weekends that we are busy that we do only let um, folks over 21. But if you want to come in and drink kombucha, that's totally fine. Cool. Yeah. So, you know, especially maybe early or in the day on like a nice Friday, if you're in Atherton, come on down here, check it out. There are plenty of non-alcoholic options for you if you're not 21. If you're 21, there's options that are available to you as well. So Katie, as we wrap up, what would you say is the biggest success that you've had in your career so far? I had time to prepare for this and I still don't recall. You know what? Honestly, I'm pretty proud of the hard kombucha situation because a lot of the commercial, I I take that back, all of the commercial examples that I've had just don't taste good. (laughs) No no real offense intended. It's a strange product to begin with. Like kombucha is a strong flavor that not everyone likes. It's polarizing, but I'm really proud of how mine tastes. Tastes like tea. It tastes like the fruit that I put in it. A lot of folks can't taste the alcohol, which I consider that a win. It's a clean fermentation, as clean as it can be. And it was it was a tough microbiological question to answer. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. I think we'll call that my success. I think that's a good answer based on understanding how difficult that is. And if it was easy, I imagine a lot more breweries would be doing it. So Yeah, and a lot of breweries have taken to just spiking their regular kombucha, the the non-alcoholic. And and mine is like a true fermentation from start to finish. It's not adding any grain ethanol or seltzer or anything to the final product. So Definitely something to be proud of. Yeah. But on the flip side, what is a mistake or a transformational learning moment that you've had that you took something really important from it that's helpful for students to learn from that experience as well? It's hard to think in such like extremes because like transformational and something that you would consider a mistake are like different things. Because like as far as transformational, I would definitely say it was the AT. Like that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was finishing that trail in the (laughs) in the middle of December when it was cold and I just wanted to go home and be warm and dry. Definitely like prioritizing, figuring out what was actually important to me. But I wasn't thinking of like in terms of my career, I wouldn't consider the AT to be part of my career. I think stopping out is, and you know, cause that's a risk, right? Yeah. A lot of people are judgmental in that on resumes. Oh, absolutely. So. Yeah, that's like almost a screening criteria. And if someone finds that to be a red flag, that's their red flag. Yep. Yeah. 
So when I started working here at Moody Culture, I had the epiphany that intelligence is never wasted. <laughs> so the concept that there's societal pressure on people who get certain grades or have a certain IQ that they have to go on to get a PhD or they have to be a doctor to be successful. And that's like a lot of pressure on a person. And to think that because someone else expects you to do that, then you're wasting your life if you're not meeting that expectation. But if you have knowledge and intelligence and good work ethic to, to work hard, that's never wasted. I definitely think that my product is better because I have a strong microbiology background. And am I using that background to be a doctor and save lives? Like, no, I'm using it to brew tea and give people a nice little fizzy beverage for their afternoon snack, whatever. But like, I don't think that I'm less because that this career is less satisfying and fulfilling to me as a person because I'm, I'm not being more. Yeah, so having having a base level of intelligence is useful in any aspect of life. Absolutely. And I would honestly, I'd say you're kind of like in the joy industry, like you're providing yes. some semblance of happiness in a world that can oftentimes take that away from people. Yeah. And also just like having a bar like this is community. People come here when they're happy and want to share joy or they come here when they need someone to talk to or a shoulder to cry on. And this gives us the like the, the framework for community is this bar, which I also really appreciate. Absolutely. And and probably, you know, hearing in the background of this, you can probably pick up that more and more people have got, come into the brewery room here as we've been recording and started out with nobody at the bar. And now there are several people there. So I think that speaks to your point, Katie. Something we haven't talked about, but is a big theme of this podcast is the idea of mentorship. So how have mentors helped you along the way and how do you try to pay it forward to others uh, who are interested in the things that you have expertise in? When I was in school, I had participated in several like very structured uh, mentorship programs where I had, you know, a basically a career buddy who was 15, 20 years more experienced than me. And I would talk to them about my career and like, what should I be taking in school and classes like that, kind of like an academic advisor and very like strict. And we're going to meet once a month uh, for an hour. I didn't find that I gained that much out of those. The conversations that I end up valuing are ones that are unexpected where I'll stay late after something and someone else will be here and we'll find a connection and I'll learn something from them. Like something definitely less structured has been more impactful for me. I've had folks reach out to me on social media, LinkedIn to discuss with like their cousin or their younger, younger sibling, something like that to discuss career options. But then also like running into someone's younger sibling while just visiting them at their house and having an impactful discussion like mentorship just like on the fly and like calling it mentorship mentorship is like a little stuffy as well it's like we're just being people talking to each other and like sharing experiences and being vulnerable to each other so that we can eventually be better uh so mentorship should happen every day folks that's a really good perspective on that katie i like that i think it's important too being vulnerable because mm -hmm. nobody knows everything right nope so we're wrapping up our time. Are there any professors or colleagues or friends that you wanted to give a shout out to <laughs> while you've got the mic? Oh, that's cruel, Sean. I don't know. I guess shout out to my partner, Eric. He's the best and he's very supportive of, of my antics. And when I, when I got a job here, he was like, wow, you're so cool. And I'm like, dude, thanks. Thank you for the support. <laughs> so yeah, Eric, my boy. That's awesome. And also give a shout out to, uh, we referenced in the very beginning of our conversation, your sister Nicole, uh, one of my classmates from way back in the day at Berks. So kind of your genesis for getting into the college too. So her shout out as well. I don't normally give shout outs for other people, but. 
Yeah, okay. shout out to Nicole. So is there a final piece of advice that you would leave any student or alum listening? Absolutely. As you might be able to guess, my advice is to just do the thing that you're interested in. Obviously, if you have different you know, financial situation, pay your bills first, kids. But if there's a career that interests you, even if it makes a little less money than what you're doing now, just go for it. If you don't like it, like you don't have to do it forever. <laughs> uh, you can do it for a couple months. And um, if someone says that's going to look bad on your resume, like, you know what? Not being satisfied with your career would also kind of stink. So if, if there's something that is interesting to you, I personally would, you know, value someone who's willing to take that leap of faith, essentially, and have that gap in their resume for potentially finding a new passion in a career that they truly enjoy. So, yeah, go for it. Is my advice. You do spend a significant amount of your waking adult life wherever you are earning your income. So yeah. it's important to enjoy it. And enjoy your the folks that you're working with too. Absolutely. That's super important. You see them sometimes more than your own family. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to like those people. Yeah, the work fam. So Katie, if a staller wanted to connect with you and kind of pick your brain or even come try the products that you're creating, how can they do that? I'm most easily reached on Instagram. I'm sure Sean's going to post my Instagram handle, Kit Katliginski. I'm also on LinkedIn less less frequently than Instagram, but yeah, Instagram's the best way to reach me. If you want to come down, have a little tour and tasting of the brewery, happy to do that. Come down and try some tea. Excellent. And finally, speaking of flavors. We've talked a lot about flavoring tea and other alcoholic beverages throughout our conversation, but we're going to talk dairy products to wrap things up. You know, milk is the state drink of Pennsylvania. Do you say milkshake is? Milk is. Milk is. Uh, I thought you were going to say milkshake. Come on. (laughs) Well, by proxy, right? Yes. Key (laughs) ingredients. So we'll, 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 we'll stretch that one. For sure. Perfect. So if you were a flavor of Berkey Creamery ice cream, which would you be? And most importantly, Katie, as a Stoller alumna, why would you be that flavor? Uh, the deepest question of the entire interview. I'm going to go with Peachy Paterno because it's just delicious. Like it's it's light and fruity. It's delicious, but also because it mixes well, really well with anything with chocolate in it. Which really? Which is something I wouldn't expect I wouldn't have either. So I had, the first time I had Peachy Paterno, I had a scoop of Peachy Paterno and I had a a scoop of chocolate marshmallow swirl, I believe. It was just a fantastic combination. Like you don't expect it, like French fries and milkshake type of situation. I feel like this is just delicious. And I think I'd like to identify as a person who's good at mixing with unknown things and turning out really tasty. Maybe not tasty, but well. It is your day job, so trust your opinion on this. (laughs) Thank you, John. Awesome. (laughs) Well, Katie Legensky, thank you so much for your time, your hospitality here at Anti-Fragile Brewing and Moody Culture Kombucha. We've had a great conversation about all things brewing, the Appalachian Trail, kind of finding your passions in life and really pursuing those. I appreciate your time and thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, scholars, for listening and learning with us today. We hope you will take something with you that will contribute to how you shape the world. This show proudly supports the Schreier Honors College Emergency Fund, benefiting scholars experiencing unexpected financial hardship. You can make a difference at raise.psu.edu forward slash Schreier. Please be sure to hit the relevant subscribe, like, or follow button on whichever platform you are engaging with us on today. You can follow the college on Instagram and LinkedIn to stay up to date on news, events, and deadlines. If you have questions about the show or are a Stoller alum who'd like to join us as a guest here on Following the Gone, please connect with me at stolleralumni at psu.edu. Until next time, please stay well, and we are...